Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Keep those open this morning as we process the text beginning in verse 22, Matthew 12. If you're visiting Christ Church, uh, we're glad you're with us. My name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers, and we're glad you've joined us. This series, The Gospel That We're In, is taking the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell the story of Jesus' life, and we've put them together in a chronological form to the best of our estimation to be able to talk about who this Jesus is, what he came to do, and how that affects each and every one of us. Uh, Sometimes theology messes with us because it proposes something to us and it's difficult for us to understand it. There was a pastor who was out painting the church building one afternoon and one of his neighbors came by and he was walking his horse. And the, the pastor had just been studying in James that passage about life is short and it's but a vapor. So it was on his mind and as he saw his neighbor pass by, he said, hey, where are you going today? And the neighbor said, I'm gonna go town and sell my horse. And the pastor said, well, you really ought to say, if it be the Lord's will, because that's what he'd learned that morning. And the man said, well, the Lord's will has nothing to do with it. It's my horse. I'm going to sell it. And the pastor said, well, you really, I'm telling you, you ought to say, uh, if it be the Lord's will. The man had a smirk on his face. He said, I raised the horse. I've got a buyer. The Lord's had nothing to do with it. I'm going to sell my horse. And with that, he walked off very self-satisfied. The pastor went back to painting the church. About an hour and a half later, he saw his neighbor coming back, except the neighbor had no pants, no shoes, a torn shirt, And his neck and arms and face was all cut up and bleeding. And he said, oh my goodness, what happened to you? He said, well, I took so long talking to you that I had to take a shortcut through a field. And the farmer saw my horse out in the field and thought it was a wild horse and it was eating his crops. So he shot my horse. And when he shot my horse, it kicked me in the face and it fell on me. And I had to take my slip out of my boots and my pants to get out from under the horse. And then he saw me moving. He thought it was another animal. He was shooting at me. So I ran through the field and I hit his barbed wire fence. He said, my horse is dead, and I just started coming home. And the pastor said to him, what are you going to do now? And he said, I'm going to go home, if it be the Lord's will. (laughs) The point that I really want to talk to us about, thank you for laughing, just really, (laughs) thank you. But the point of that open is sometimes theology messes with us. Because God says things are one way and we want them to be another way or we think they're another way. We have a trouble fitting. And a lot of times, I think if we're honest with one another deep in our hearts, we ask God to join us in what we're doing instead of building our lives on doing what God is doing. We ask God to come into my world instead of entering into God's kingdom. And theology sometimes will mess with us. Today is one of those texts in scripture that Christians hear and it causes a panic. I think it's an undue panic. But it ought to bring a response from each and every one of us. So what I'm going to simply do this morning is walk you through a very uh, controversial text, or a misunderstood is probably a better word, and I'm going to show you that the evidence that Jesus presented, I want to show you the reaction that his audience had to him, and I want to show you the consequences that Jesus brought to light from that interaction. So it's a really simple process. We're just going to dissect it as we go. Let's begin with the evidence presented in verse 22 of Matthew 12. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? This is unique because Matthew, at this point in the 12th chapter of his gospel, the story of Jesus, Matthew doesn't tell us how he healed him. 
He doesn't give us a bunch of background. He just simply tells us Jesus healed him. He could not see or speak, probably deaf as well, and Jesus healed him. But the crowd reaction is what Matthew wants to focus us on. He said, they say, could this be the son of David? That's the point he's driving home. And the reason he's driving that home is the rabbis taught that when the Holy Spirit came upon a person, like maybe Elijah or Elisha, that they could do miracles because God's Spirit came on them. But there were certain uh, miracles, certain healings that the rabbis taught only the Messiah could do. One of those being the blind and mute person that they felt that this is something the Messiah would do. So they have this issue. Jesus came and he healed. And Matthew said, he did what the Messiah should do in miracles. And then the evidence is presented to the audience and the audience gets to respond. Now, for those of you visiting, our stage design, as artistic as it is, has a purpose. We've taken the story of Jesus and we've seen five major movements in the story of Jesus. And the heights and the dips and the valleys of this piece behind me indicate where we are in the story, the arc of Jesus' story, the movements. We began with the arrival, beautiful, way up celestial, ascending down to earth and becoming a part of us. Then we went to the period of obscurity, kind of a little flat line there where Jesus was growing up until roughly the age of 30 years of age and what happened in that time period. And then we just went through this uh, recognition phase where people began to hear the Sermon on the Mount and began to understand his teaching and ascendancy began as people recognized him. And today we start a brand new movement in the life of Jesus called the revolution. And this is where they understood who he was but they didn't accept what he came to do. And Jesus called for a revolution. And so they asked the question, is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? Because you told us the Messiah would do this. And let's look at the decision that they rendered. With the evidence in front of them, here's what they concluded. Matthew 12, 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. That was their conclusion. A man who couldn't see, hear, or speak can now see, hear, and speak. And the crowd looked at them and said, explain this. And they said, it's of Satan. That was their conclusion, their logical conclusion. And we look at that and go, no, Mark, that wasn't logical at all. There's no way they should have concluded that. But they did, and so do we. Every time God is bigger than we want him to be, every time he's more powerful than we want him to be, Every time we say, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. He wouldn't really expect me to do that. There's no way he puts that expectation on me. Anytime we try to contain God. See, Jesus has given a glimpse of who God is, but we can't contain God. You couldn't find a container that can contain the oceans. You can't find a mind that completely understands God. And yet in this moment, their conclusion was this, that he was not only demonic, but they said he was from the prince of darkness. He was the leader of this movement. He was the demon of all demons on earth. And then Jesus responds to them in verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts. Hit pause. If you were with us here last week, we concluded in this chronology, Luke chapter 7, where a woman came into a banquet uh, at a man named Simon's house. Simon was a Pharisee. He invited Jesus in so he could test Jesus. This woman came in and began to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair and cry and pour perfume on him. And all of that was taking place. And if you remember, if you were with us last week, but if not, let me tell you what happened. Simon thinks, he doesn't say a word. He thinks in his mind, 
If he's really the Messiah, he would know that this is an unclean woman and she shouldn't be touching him. And without him saying a word, Jesus responds to him. Simon, if a, if a person is forgiven for two months' wages and a person is forgiven for two years' wages, which one should be more grateful? And Simon's response was, I suppose the one forgiven the most. The reason he supposed is he never could imagine he needed forgiven. So he truly didn't know. He never said a word. Jesus knew his thoughts. Jesus responds without them saying a word. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Then he asks a series of questions. And they're really funny if you're awake. A third hour ought to be awake. So let's see if this works. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? If Satan's defeating Satan, is there a winner? And if I drive out demons, they didn't say a word, but he said, and if you think I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? That's good. Now, you can chuckle now because that's funny. So he said, oh, so I cast out demons by demons. So when you cast out demons, who do you do it by? He pins them with their own flawed logic. He said, so then, demons will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, here's a thought, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he will rob his house. Jesus said, I just took a demon-possessed man who can now see, hear, and speak. I took him from Satan, and Satan could do nothing. I bound him by my power my authority. And you think Satan did that to himself? That's ridiculous. And if it is true, then you cast out demons by the same demonic power I do. And notice there's nothing they can say. Jesus simply says, you know what I just did. And you refuse to acknowledge it. And that becomes the consequence of our decisions. You know, I need you to hang with me because I'm going to put some building blocks on this stage here, just theoretically and figuratively, and then we're going to build what it means when Jesus about ventures into this next discussion. Because he says, you've seen what I've done, and you're, you're going to say it's demonic, and you know it's not demonic. And so he warns them. The consequences are found in verses 30 through 32. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And Christianity comes grinding to a halt. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, the one thing you can do that God will not forgive. Am I the only person? I know Elijah told me you won't raise your hands for anything. So am I the only person in the room who struggles with the thought that, have I ever done this? What if I do it by accident? Is God going to go, eh, you're out? Is this what we're talking about? Because growing up in a King James world, it was, you know, the unpardonable sin, blasphemy. What does blasphemy mean? It means to revile or to speak in, in contrast to. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to hear the conviction of the Spirit in your life of who Jesus is and correct him, ignore him, rebuke him. We're told that we can quench and grieve the Holy Spirit too. 
So in light of all of this, Jesus lays this out. And this is one of the most frequently misunderstood passages in Scripture because there are Christians who are being led by the Holy Spirit who are afraid that if they do the wrong thing, they've eliminated themselves. So to be able to put this together, I need you to track with me. So if you disconnected, join back. There's two things I need us to understand about how this works. The first is, let's begin with the expression of God, the characteristic or attribute of God that's most important. And that is, he loves us. God doesn't do love, God is love. He pursues us. The Bible says, like a lover pursues their love. Like a father pursues children. Like a mother carries or cares for her children. That the love of God is there. That's why John 3.16 matters to us. For God so loved the world, let me parenthetically add, before we even knew he did, he so loved us that he sent his son. He did it without us doing a thing. He did it because it's who he is. He did it because we're his children and he has a love for us as a parent has a love for their child. That is foundationally true. When Peter stood on this stage and read Psalm 103, I don't mean the apostle Peter, I mean Peter Buckland, although that's confused around here on occasion. When Buckland was talking about the 103rd Psalm, without knowing where I was headed today, he talked about the love of God is proven. The love of God is proven. The love of God is faithful. Do not forget the love of God and hold on to it tightly, right? And that led us into the Lord's Supper. That love is foundational because it brings with it mercy, which means you can't do anything that will cause God not to love you. And I'll even suggest if you pay attention to good theology, you'll find out that the punishment of God, the discipline of God, is also based on his love. And that mercy, that mercy is ours, church. No matter what you've done and how you've lived your life and the choices that even you regret, the mercy of God is never exhausted. It's never retracted. But, but Mark, Jesus just said there's a sin that won't be forgiven. Hold, hold on. The mercy of God is the first pillar. And from the mercy of God comes the forgiveness of God. Jesus came to display the mercy of God on earth through the grace of the cross, the power of the resurrection, and forgiveness for every one of us. So class, are you with me? Here's what we just learned. If we're not willing to fall on the mercy of God, there can be no forgiveness of God. The, and... On the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, Peter preached the first full gospel sermon because the resurrection was known. And he told them about what Jesus came to do and what we and our sin did to him and how he was tortured and brutalized, killed. And do you remember what the crowd cried out? What, what can we do to be saved? And do you remember what Peter said? Repent. And be baptized. Repent. Fall on the mercy. See, repentance in America means stop it. Right? Church growing up. You grew up in church. I got a problem with my language. Quit it. I have an addiction. Stop it. My marriage isn't good. Quit it. Stop it. Do something different. Try. Effort. Do the best you can. But repentance truly isn't about behavior. Repentance is about changing the way you think about why you're doing what you're doing. If you want to change your behavior, start questioning yourself. There was a, I've never been cool, but there was a phrase five or ten years ago that we used to say all the time. So how's that working out for you? Church? 
If we asked our soul that question, we'd probably truly repent and stop doing what we're doing. If we really said, how's that alcohol working out for you? How's that gambling working out for you? How's that mistreating your spouse working out for you? How's that ignoring your kids working out for you? How's pleasing your boss and losing your family working out for you? Wow, Mark, you're angry. No, just tired. (laughs) Church, you can't repent until you change your mind. You can do behaviors that indicate something that's not even there. So the mercy of God allows me to repent and the grace and forgiveness of Jesus allows me to be forgiven. This is what Jesus wants us to know. If we shut ourselves off from the only one who could bring us to repentance, and we have shut ourselves off from forgiveness. I want to say that again. If we shut ourselves off from the only one who can bring us to the point of needing the mercy of God in our awareness, then we will shut ourselves off from forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is always found in relationship. So my friend Eddie's down here. And I look over there, and someone walks over and punches Eddie in the arm. I walk up to that person who hit him, and I say, I forgive you for punching Eddie. I can't do that, can I? Only Eddie can forgive the guy who punched him. So Jesus says, there comes a moment in time where you have to go back to the one you truly sinned against. It starts with yourself, and then it ends up on God. And you go back to God, and because he's merciful, listen to me, because he's merciful, no matter what you've done, you can always go to God. You cannot extinguish his love for you. But you have to go to God in the awareness of what Jesus offers you in forgiveness. That's why when they asked Peter, he said, he said repent and be forgiven. So what was Jesus talking about? In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the mercy of a loving God who sent his son Jesus Christ to not only die, but to invite us from our death back into life. You see, the gospel isn't about have your sins forgiven and wait for heaven. The gospel is about understand the mercy of a loving father as seen through Jesus Christ and live your life differently because of that. Not a life for yourself, but a life for him. You see, it's the Spirit's work to open our eyes. It's the Spirit's work to speak to our hearts. That's why sometimes when you're in church and a guy like me is talking or someone's teaching something, there's a part of you that becomes uncomfortable and you're like, ah, I don't like that. I don't want that to be true. That would mess with me. I'm not living my life anywhere near that. If that's true, I'm in trouble. And if that's true, could I ever start over? And, and is his love true? And would he take me? All of that is not the persuasion of a preacher. All of that is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, God loves you so much, he's constantly tapping you on the shoulder going, hey, hi, I'm here. We pray, beautiful song, I love this song, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. He's going to be here whether we invite him or not. When we invite him, we only recognize for our own good that he's here. That's why I tease this church all the time. You don't have to pray, Jesus be with us today, because he's going to tap you on the shoulder and go, hello, been here all night. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, correct? The conviction you have in your heart, that, that lack of comfort and that lack of passion, those moments when you're hearing a passage of Scripture being read and you're looking at it and you're seeing the love of Jesus and you're like, I want that, that part of you that says, it's mine. That's the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus said to the audience that day, when the Holy Spirit shows you who I am, and remember, the Holy Spirit points to Jesus, Jesus points to the Father, and the Father points back to his Spirit and Son. They work in unison. It's Trinitarian. That when the Holy Spirit says, you can, you can become this, you can follow Jesus, even in the state you're in, when that happens, if Jesus Christ is being revealed for who he said he was, and I know this is harsh, but if Jesus is who he says he, he is, only a fool would disobey him. If the man who said what he's going to do and did every bit of it, shouldn't we, when convicted by his spirit, by his truth, by the power of the gospel, shouldn't each and every one of us go, of course I would do that. Or of course I won't do that anymore. And Jesus said, when the spirit speaks and you and I say, nah, I'm good. Or maybe another day. Or I'm not sure that fits in the box. Jesus, I, I want to be your disciple, but yeah, every day. When we make those decisions, do you hear what Jesus is saying to the crowd that day? You can say things about me because you don't understand me yet. But when the Holy Spirit brings truth to you and you turn it off, he said, be very careful because there's no forgiveness. Follow me now. There's no forgiveness for that person because there's no what? Repentance. You've you've closed your heart to the forgiveness that's available to you. Let me put it this way. If the elders would have come up to me this morning and said, hey, Mark, we got a lot of business and you talk a long time, so you got two minutes this morning. Here's what I would have told you. This is not you ticked God off and he's done with you. Jesus is saying it's that you've turned your heart off and you're done with him. Because the mercy and love of God will forgive anybody who repents and seeks what Jesus Christ offers. But so it's not that God gets to a point where he goes, Mark, three strikes, you've had 19, I'm done. God looks and says, you can always come home to me, but you need to come home to my mercy so I can cleanse you from your sins and I can be your salvation. So Jesus said there comes a point in our time where the word of God and the truth of Jesus Christ is revealed to us and we just say, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I know who he is, but I'm not going to obey him. I know who he is, but I'm not going to let him correct me. You see, it's more than an attitude or a single act. It's a state of willful rejection. It's hearing the truth of God, feeling the Spirit convict you. And whether you're a believer or not, the Holy Spirit's convicting you and I right now. I, I wish you could read the transcript in my mind, at least parts of it, while I've been preaching three times this morning. Because I'll tell you, there have been moments God's like, uh-huh, are you listening? You see, what's funny is I, I need to open my eyes to see Jesus for who he is and I need to open my ears and hear his words and let them process. And then when, I open, when he opens my ears, my tongue will speak his truth. Isn't that funny? That's the same miracle he started this teaching with. He took a blind, deaf, mute person. He gave them sight, ears to hear, and a mouth to speak. And he does the same thing with you and I. Verses 33 through 37. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. Hmm. My grandmother here in Missouri had a, a crab apple tree and I think with my personality, if I were a tree, it would be a crab apple tree. And uh, 
She used to have us pick those apples, and she would cut off the best part she could off of an apple. But I found out for every four apples we gave her, together they made one good apple. She threw most of it away. She made some of the best apple crisp I've ever had in my entire life. But I thought, the tree. That apple tree was never going to produce peaches. It would produce apples. Some would be good, some would be bad. And Jesus uses that analogy for you and I. He says, look at the fruit of your life. Is it responsive to who Jesus is and what Jesus has called you into his mercy and forgiveness? Is, is your life responsive to that or is it antithetical to that? Is it the opposite of that? Are you going in a different direction? Because he said, be careful because the tree can produce good fruit as it's been created to, but you're the one stopping it because you're not giving it what it needs, verse 34. And then if that's not a happy note, he says, you brood of vipers, yikes. Why does he say that? Because they called him a demon. He actually is revealing to them what the fruit of their lives looks like. It looks more like the serpent than it does the father. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, what's unfortunately been done with verses 33 to 37, these five verses have been pulled out of this chapter and used by people like me too often to say, every word you say is going to be repeated before the throne of God, and you're going to be held accountable for every word. Eh, it's partially true. Every word you say about the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're accountable for Every time we try to fit Jesus in a box instead of letting him be the master of the universe, Jesus said, be careful. Those words you say about, well, that used to be true back then. I'm not sure it's true today. Be very, very careful. Because remember, it's not just an action. It's an attitude. It's a willful disobedience. So all Jesus is doing is drawing this to conclusion. Be really careful when the Holy Spirit speaks to you that you listen because the words and response you give to the Spirit's provocation will bring life or it will close your heart. Because again, God's not going to get so mad at you that his mercy runs out. Your heart's going to become so hard and so distant that you'll never turn back. And the reason it's unpardonable is because you won't let him pardon you. So for those who have sat for years going, I don't know, maybe I did it and didn't know it. You know, I, growing up in church for the longest time, I don't know if it's ever said, but it sure picked it up. You know, I always, my example is always in the middle of the night, I go up to get a drink or use the bathroom, I stub my toe on the edge of the bed, and I fall over and hit my head on the dresser, and I die, and I say a bad word on the way to the ground, and I get to heaven, and Jesus goes, oh, you were so close. <laughs> but you didn't say you were sorry for the word, so see ya. Is that really our God? Mercy. It's the pillar of our hope forgiveness it's the work of Jesus Christ and in that is the only strength we need to build our lives take one without the other it all comes crashing down keep them together you live eternally so what are we supposed to do with this one of the things a preacher like me has to do every week is not only teach you biblical truth but answer the so what question it's the practical nature of the gospel so here's what I want to do and I, this morning it's unique because I can talk to everybody in the room all three services, I can talk to every single one of you, whether you're a believer or you're just seeking this out and searching for who this Jesus is. 
Every single one of us today, not, not just in the past, but today, every single one of us has to make a decision in regards to Jesus. Look at the evidence. Only a fool would know who Jesus is and not do what he says. But also only a fool would know that there's evidence to prove who Jesus is and ignore it. Only a person who doesn't care about their soul can have the words of God delivered to them in a book written by the inspiration of the Holy Scripture and not know what it says. I know I'm using hard terms today, but please, if this awakens you to the hope of the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus, then if I offend you, I'll take that risk. But to simply let your ears be closed and your eyes shut and nothing to speak is the waste of a lifetime. And it opens us up to the worst thing. You see, Jesus said, you want a sign? I'll give you the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I will be in the earth for three days. And then you will know who I am. Is there enough evidence to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You need to find out. Don't let me research that for you. You research it. I'll research it with you. I'd love to show you what I've learned. But at the end of the day, we talked about this two weeks ago. Jesus is not going to erase every doubt you have, but he's going to give you enough evidence that you can have faith. And the resurrection is that faith. You must make a decision about Jesus. And you must make a decision about sin. Because of the mercy of God and the forgiveness through Christ, many of us treat sin as if it's not a threatening thing anymore. Because I'm forgiven, what's the difference? I'll just keep doing what I've always done. Be careful. Because the more you push God away, the further you'll become. To a point that there may come a moment in your life where you re-crucify Christ and simply say, "Ah, yeah, it doesn't matter, I'm good. The mercy means nothing anymore, the grace means nothing anymore, and like Simon at his house, I, I suppose this was a good thing, but I don't know anymore. You see, every time you taste the bitterness of sin, you lose from your mouth the taste of God's mercy and his goodness. So what are we supposed to do today, church? I'll tell you this. Jesus said, you can misunderstand me, but I'll give you evidence. But when the Spirit moves on your life, as he's speaking to some of you right now, some of you who have been believers for years, but you're aware that you have turned off his voice, you're living in the past. I'm not saying you're not saved, but I'm asking you, are you alive? Can you hear? Can you see? Can you speak? And for some of you, who have never taken a knee before Jesus Christ. You see who he is. You see what he's done. This isn't mythology. This is true story. Can you see the evidence? Because the only thing you're going to be held to for the rest of your days, throughout eternity, is what did you and I do with Jesus Christ? How did we respond to him? He's not asking for perfection. He's asking for faith. We need to make a decision on Jesus. And we need to make our own decision on sin. And if this morning you want to make a decision, I'm going to leave the stage and go out into the foyer. And I know it's totally uncool and uncomfortable for you to walk out of here because even if you're using the bathroom, everyone thinks you're a sinner needing saved. Can this be a safe place? If, if you have to go through two doors to find Jesus, isn't it worth it? And you think, well, I don't even know what to do. And they may trap me. I promise you, you're safe here. We'll walk together in community. We'll give you the evidence we have in front of us and let you choose Jesus on your own. But we want to help you do that. But it has to be your choice. You'll confess him or you won't. Today it's about Jesus. 
Today it's saying, I'm going to repent of my sin into the mercy of God so I can walk in the forgiveness of grace. And this is the day God could have everything he wants, which is the hearts of every one of us. Let's renew our minds on Jesus. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.